Welcome to the Brain Health Revolution podcast with your hosts, Aisha and Dean Sherzai. Friends, I'm very excited to bring this next episode to you all. The subject is brain bleeds or cerebral hemorrhage. We'll take a deep dive into the epidemiology of this condition, the diagnosis, the different symptoms, treatments, and prevention. It's a pretty devastating disease, and we hope you take a listen to it and enjoy the information that we're bringing to you. But before we start the episode, I'd like to tell you guys about NeuroAcademy. NeuroAcademy is a membership-based online environment that Dean and I have created where you'll have access to resources to achieve optimal brain health, a better, sharper memory, and prevent cognitive decline. You will have access to monthly live Q&A sessions live cooking sessions with me, live podcasts with remarkable health leaders, ongoing on-demand courses on prevention of neurological diseases, and we're expanding the course to evidence-based nutrition and cooking, neuro-coaching, anxiety, and many other topics related to brain health. You will be able to get CE or CME credits if you're interested and also receive certification after taking the course. Join us by visiting neuroacademy.com. And now let's listen to the episode. Thank you so much for joining us today. Mary is a 62-year-old middle school teacher who is fairly active, runs about three miles every single morning, takes care of her family, and is generally thriving. She started experiencing some episodes of dizziness, and on one particular morning, she was feeling fine. But after her run, she took a warm shower, and coming out of the shower, she felt lightheaded and stumbled and fell. And on the way down, she hit the back of her head against the sink. The impact was pretty significant, but not enough to knock her out. She got right up, felt slightly dizzy, and felt a little pain in the back of her head for a few seconds, but it didn't really stop her from dressing and getting ready for the day. She walked downstairs and uh, um, started talking to her husband, mentioned that she fell and how they needed to buy better bathroom floor mats so nobody slips anymore. And she started speaking about general stuff with her family and got busy with her chores. Her head felt a bit sore, but she felt okay and decided not to go to the emergency room. About an hour later, when she was about to get ready to go out, she suddenly started having some shooting pain in the back of her head It was radiating and she just attributed to the superficial pain from the head trauma and didn't think of it as anything else, anything serious. Over the next few hours, the headache got worse and worse to the point that she couldn't stand anymore and she felt very lightheaded and any sound or light made it excruciating. She was also becoming very lethargic at this point. Mary's husband, Tom, decided that this was not normal, and he quickly reached out for his phone and called 911. Within 10 minutes, the ambulance was at their doorstep, but by then, Mary was on the ground, mumbling, not responding or following any commands. In the emergency room, she had a CT scan of her head. She had a large pool of blood on the left side of her brain, which squished the brain to the right side, and the brain tissue was being pushed down as well. She was immediately transferred to the surgical unit where a neurosurgeon drilled a hole in her skull and they placed a tube in the space and drained the blood. By this time, Mary was intubated because her breathing centers were failing in the brain and she couldn't hold her airway open. After some conversation with the husband, it became apparent that Mary had been a heavy drinker at some point and had liver problems, which affected her coagulation, and she had a bleeding disorder, and that may have contributed to the brain bleed. 
And that brings us to the topic of our discussion today, which is brain bleeds or cerebral hemorrhage and the diseases of the brain blood vessels. It's remarkable that the vasculature of human brain is so phenomenal. Uh, there are over 400 miles of total vasculatures in the brain. I know. I mean, 400 miles of capillaries, if you connect them end to end, somebody did the math on this. And this is important. This is an important topic because it's much more common than we uh, we would think. <clears throat> and there's not just one type of brain bleeds disorders. There are many different types. And people have different proclivities, different tendencies, different risks at different ages. And often it's missed. And often if it's um, understood or if it's found, if it's, it's found too late, um, many stories uh, are, are similar to Mary's uh, we hear in the, or we see in the emergency room. Well, you and I ourselves have seen this often. The period of time from the time of head trauma <clears throat> to the time where it's discovered the symptoms manifest vary. Anywhere from immediate to all the way to, you know, even a day later or even months. They call it chronic subdural. And that happens in elderly who have um, atrophied brain and there was this, this slow bleed and accumulation of blood under the skull for the minimalist thing, sudden movement. So, but there's a, a huge range of bleeding disorders. And today we wanted to kind of talk about this concept, which is prevalent but unknown. And the important factor here is that to be aware of some of these, we can avoid the consequences, the long-term consequences, because if often the long-term consequences is death, and you'll hear all these statistics that we'll go over. But if it's caught early, it's absolutely the opposite. You could there could be abatement, stoppage of the uh, progression. It could be uh, 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 recovery, significant or complete recovery, depending on how bad the bleed is. But it's good to know these disorders, as uh, as Aisha said, as you said. Um, it, the brain is the most vascular organ in the body. I mean, we've said this multiple times. Uh, when we were at UCSD, we saw this uh, pathologist which showed us tissues where they've denuded or gotten eliminated all the other tissue except the blood vessels, and all that's left is blood vessels. Usually, these are imaging uh, reconstructions. And it's remarkable to think that there's anything else <clears throat> because it's all capillaries. Right. Uh, and the reason is because we have 87 billion neurons and, and hundreds of billions of glial cells, and each of these need capillaries close enough to transfer nutrients and oxygen to them. Absolutely. So it's everywhere, ubiquitous in the brain. And, and that's why 25% of our body's energy is used in the brain, and that's why a significant portion of oxygen is utilized in the brain as well. So with that said, uh, let's go over some of the epidemiology, some statistics, and then we'll go into what they look like, how to identify them, and what we can do as far as prevention is concerned. Absolutely. So I think it's important to start with definitions um, because the term brain bleed, which is also um, known as intracranial hemorrhage, is a very, very broad term. Um, what the, first of all, there are two main areas where bleeding can occur in the brain. So the bleeding can occur um, either within the skull, but outside of the brain, uh, and it can also occur inside the brain tissue. And so these areas are further divided. Um, the brain 
has three membranes, membranes, which are also known as meninges. And these membranes are arranged between our skull, the bony skull, and the actual brain tissue. And the purpose of these meninges is to cover the brain, to protect it, and it serves many different functions as well. Now, the bleeding can occur anywhere between these three membranes. Uh, the three membranes are called dura, arachnoid, and pia mater. Now, the different kinds of bleeds that we hear about are epidural bleed, which essentially happens between the skull bone and the outermost membrane layer, the dura mater. And we have subdural brain uh, bleeds, subdural bleeds, which happens between the dura mater and the arachnoid membrane. And that's where the arteries, a lot of the arteries traverse. That's correct. Right? And that's that's the one that you were actually talking about that happens mostly in elderly people. Chronic subdural hematomas happen uh, within you know days to weeks after a very minor injury in elderly people. And they happen to people who tend to have either um, atrophy of the brain or say, for example, if they are on some sort of blood thinners like mm -hmm. anticoagulants for atrial fibrillation, for people who actually have coagulation problems, whether it's because of drinking excessively or some liver disease or many other medical conditions can contribute to it as well. Then we have subarachnoid bleeds or subarachnoid hemorrhage. And this happens between the arachnoid membrane and the PM membrane. So it's on the inner side of the brain layers. So these are the kind of bleeds that don't happen inside the brain tissue, but basically between the skull and the brain. And then we have the bleeds that occur inside the brain tissue. And these are called intracerebral hemorrhage uh, or hemorrhagic strokes as well. Now, hemorrhagic strokes essentially make up for about 13% of all strokes. If our audience listened to our previous episode, we know that most strokes are ischemic strokes, which is as a result of a clot or some impediment in the blood flow of the brain, you know, not getting oxygen and nutrients to a particular part of the brain. But intracerebral hemorrhage is when there is damage to the blood vessels inside the brain tissue, and that causes release of blood into the brain tissue. The majority uh, reasons for death related to stroke actually are attributed to hemorrhagic strokes. It's quite fatal. It causes a lot of disability, even if people, uh, you know, uh, survive the intracerebral hemorrhage, uh, subarachnoid hemorrhage as well. And the reason is because it almost acts like a tumor or a space-occupying lesion that happens very quickly and it presses on very vital parts of the brain, mm -hmm. causes damage to, say, for example, respiratory centers or the centers of the brain that respond to uh, our you know, autonomic nervous system or the cardiovascular system as and, well. And in this case, it's not something that you can take out, like a clot. Because if an artery is clogged, you can take out the clot either with, with a clot-busting drug or with, with instrumentation, right? With a with a uh, tube that goes through your um, arteries and then actually retrieve the clot. In this case, the, uh, the, the artery is actually uh, ruptured. So the bleeding is going on and the best you can do is stop further bleeding. <clears throat> but the damage is done already and, and the key is to make sure that there's no further damage. And the damage that's done is fairly extensive because it's not just the artery that's burst. It's the tissue that's not getting oxygen and the tissue that's actually being pressed as well. And, and here's the yeah. press part. If it's pressed enough and pushes one side of the brain to the other side, you can actually have episodes where breathing is stopped. Or if it pushes the brain down, 
it can actually push on the centers of the brain, the brainstem, where breathing and the basic uh, functions of living are being done. So those are stopped. So that's why bleeding is a lot more fraught with, uh, with uh, permanent um, uh, disability and potentially death. Absolutely. Now, who is affected by brain bleeds? Um, well, it, it depends. You know, there are various types of intracranial hemorrhages that happen in people at different ages. Um, although cerebral hemorrhage, you know, and the, the kind of bleeding that occurs anywhere inside the brain and hemorrhagic strokes are most common in older adults, they can also occur in children. I mean, we have an entire segment in neurology on pediatric strokes or pediatric hemorrhagic, uh, you know, lesions. Um, so you can actually see uh, different age groups being affected by hemorrhagic strokes in, in different ways. But the majority of cases that we see as adult neurologists, they occur in older adults. And in, uh, in children, it's usually not because of vascular risk factors, but because of some anomalies uh, in blood vessels. And these could be because of things like an um, AVM or arteriovenous malformation, or it could be some aneurysms. Um, other possible causes uh, are things like some brain tumors, um, infection or septicemia or infection in the system of, exactly. of the baby. Or prematurity. There prematurity. Intraventricular hemorrhages fairly common in, in, in premature uh, birth. Absolutely, and those are as a result of either direct or indirect trauma during birth. So these are you know some of the reasons that you actually tend to see it in the pediatric population. Um, and the numbers are pretty, you know, I was, I was surprised to, to see the numbers. According to the National Stroke Association, a stroke happens in about one in 4,000 live births. And children typically recover from brain hemorrhages, thankfully, with better outcomes compared to adults because their brain is still developing and it recovers rather fast. And even the functions are transferred to other parts of the brain. Absolutely. A few statistics. Cerebral hemorrhages account for about 13% of all strokes in the United States, and it's the second leading cause of stroke. Um, the leading cause of stroke is a blood clot mm -hmm. or ischemic um, exactly. uh, strokes. Um, so ruptured brain aneurysms affect about 30,000 people in the United States every year. AVMs or arteriovenous malformations are present in about 1% of the population. And about 2% of all hemorrhagic strokes are from an AVM every year. Yes. Let's go over some of the causes of brain bleeds. Um, so there are a number of causes. And the first one seems to be head trauma. And that is usually seen in elderly individuals after say for example a fall a car accident it's seen in you know middle-aged individuals or adolescents after sports accidents or any type of blow to the mm -hmm. head and it can range from very subtle bleeds that is almost difficult to see on a ct scan on an or an mri or large bleeds that essentially act like a space occupying lesion inside the brain and you tend to see the effects rather quickly. Mm -hmm. But it, you know, the symptoms also depend on the initial health of the brain. So you tend to see symptoms rather quickly in someone who has a relatively healthy brain that is not experiencing any atrophy or shrinkage. And the reason is there's not much space in the brain for it to kind of, you know, allow for the bleed mm -hmm. to occupy. So 
you you get to see that very quickly. But in a lot of elderly adults who have a lot of space or some atrophy in their brain, even if there is some bleeding, you don't tend to see a lot of symptoms, do you? No, no, you don't because the brain has adjusted. So um, even if there's movement because the brain is smaller, shrunken, uh, the movement is not going to press on any vital uh, parts of the brain. Absolutely. The second, and I think this is something, that, the second reason is high blood pressure. High blood pressure is a major risk factor for hemorrhagic strokes. And the reason is long-term unmanaged or uncontrolled high blood pressure can start damaging the inner linings of blood vessel walls, and it can cause blood vessels to leak or burst or over time harden and then result in a potential you know, um, aneurysms, et cetera. So we see that quite often. Mm -hmm. And that's why from a public health perspective, I think managing blood pressure is one of the most important things we can do for reducing both the risk of ischemic stroke and hemorrhagic stroke. I, I can't emphasize this point enough that blood pressure management <clears throat> can affect so much of your health, be it hemorrhagic risk, be it strokes in general, be it heart disease, uh, be it cognitive decline. Across the board, blood pressure management is probably one of the most important things we can do. And no matter how much I speak about it, uh, not many people actually follow the recommendations of doing at least once or twice a day blood pressure measurement and recording it and following it over time. I've seen uh, just this last week, at least a dozen patients who came in with blood pressures above 150, 140, 150, and actually a couple of them in the 180s and 190s. And that's that to me is a mini stroke because you might not see the overt big stroke, but those small tenuous arteries are getting damaged. So that's where one of the opportunities lies where you can definitely uh, reduce the risk of stroke, vascular disease, and dementia, for that matter, by managing blood pressure. Um, and, and, and that's the that's emphasis that we make in every clinic visit. And as neurologists, we're actually trained to figure out when someone comes in with a stroke, when you look at their CT scans or their MRIs, you can almost always tell that the bleed is associated with high blood pressure because it affects very particular parts of the brain. So the inner, deeper aspects of the brain, like the basal ganglia or the pons or the cerebellum are usually affected by um, hypertension. Correct. So the bleeds in those areas tells you that this person may have had either a very acute onset or a very quick increase in their blood pressure um, at that particular time, or they've had unmanaged blood pressure over a long period of time. So the location of the bleed can also tell you the reason behind the bleed. And then the, the, next, um, the next reason, uh, the next cause for um, bleeds is buildup of fatty deposits in the arteries or atherosclerosis, mm -hmm. which is hardening of the arteries. So atherosclerosis is the term used for hardening of the arteries, larger arteries, and if it's medium-sized, it's called arteriosclerosis. And essentially over time, um, the inner linings of the blood vessel walls, they kind of get damaged mm -hmm. with the deposition of uh, plaques and this can result due to unmanaged uh, fat metabolism or high LDL for that matter, and even abnormal glucose metabolism. So say for example, if someone has insulin resistance or unmanaged diabetes, this kind of a pathology can take place and over time it thins out the blood vessels and it can burst and cause bleeding. Not to be dire and 
and <clears throat> trying to scare people, but people don't realize how tenuous our, our blood vessels truly are, especially after 50 years, 60 years of blood pumping uh, through those arteries or arterioles, the small arteries or capillaries for that matter. And, and especially if somebody has had blood pressure, even minor increased blood pressure for years and years, those arteries are going to be a really uh, in tenuous situation. They're going to be rupturing or, or clotting off if we don't take care of them. And on top of that, you add high LDL, high cholesterol, the damage both as far as the accumulation of that material in the, in the, in the wall, as well as the physical trauma to the wall is just immense. Um, and that should bring us a greater awareness of we are almost magical in our thinking, aren't we? Oh, we're going to be fine. We've been fine for the last 40 years, 50 years, and it's going to be fine. Nope. Uh, the cumulative effect is one of uh, just uh, persistent trauma to those uh, little arteries, and eventually they're going to give up. But the good news is there's data that if you take care of the blood pressure, if you take care of the cholesterol, that is significantly reduced. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> Absolutely. Um, and we'll talk about the association between LDL and intracerebral hemorrhage in a few minutes because that's also a very, very interesting point that um, has become almost a debate yeah. when it comes to management of vascular risk factors. In any case, moving on to um, the next one, which is ruptured cerebral aneurysms, or, or uh, aneurysms are essentially weak spots in blood vessels uh, that kind of balloons out. And then over time, if there's a lot of hemodynamic pressure and there's high blood pressure and you know um, conditions in the body that affects the inner linings of the artery, they essentially burst and they start bleeding. And those are fairly common. Uh, <clears throat> a large percentage of population, one in 50, or in some series they say as one in 20, uh, which is one to 5% of the population have aneurysms. Now, not all of those burst, not all of those uh, bleed out, but that means that those are people who are at risk. Now, if you are one of those people who have the aneurysm <clears throat> and you have high blood pressure and cholesterol, you're going to be much higher risk of bleeding. And those usually happen in particular areas. And we also almost know for a fact that as soon as, if somebody has a bleed in that particular area, what kind of deficits they will have because the, the, the particular function of the brain is, is directly related to the location. Mm -hmm. um, so, so far, you know, if somebody has an aneurysm and you know, that's a pretty large number, um, the estimation is that 6.5 million people in the United States have an unruptured brain aneurysm. Yeah. That's a lot of people. And so the size uh, matters yes. as far as the decision of doing something about it. So typically, if it's less than five millimeters in size, neurosurgeons don't really do much about it, depending on where it is and if there's any other risk factors. And when somebody is detected to have an aneurysm, and that usually is essentially, it's like an accident. You know, you're looking for something else and then you find out that you have an aneurysm. And what neurosurgeons and vascular neurologists do, they keep an eye on it by imaging the patient on a regular basis, maybe annually, maybe every um, two years, depending on the size. And, you know, over time, making a decision uh, if, if there's something necessary to do. But it's important for people to be aware of that and get themselves checked if they have an aneurysm. And obviously, whether you have an aneurysm or not, managing vascular risk factors is critically important for prevention of stroke in general. Sometimes, though, even prior to uh, full-blown bleeding, 
um, when there's the sentinel bleeds, where the aneurysm is actually kind of leaking, or then it, it creates this um, uh, headaches or um, um, what's called menin meningeal irritation, where the neck feels tight. Now, everybody who's got neck tightness shouldn't feel like they're having an aneurysm. I'm just saying that those are some of the signs or, or, or headaches, terrible headaches. Um, uh, the other thing that can happen is if these aneurysms are in particular areas, let's say next to the ophthalmic um, uh, um, uh, artery or next to the uh, uh, um, uh, visual centers, people actually, if it's large enough, it can press on the visual um, uh, lines of communication and people can actually lose their sights. Yeah. So that is another way, but those are rare. You would be lucky if you get that. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, and the, important part of this is that if you detect it early enough, there's a lot people can do. First of all, if it's small, you just observe it over time. And if it gets big enough, the surgeons can go from outside and clip the artery with these special clips that closes it off. Or they can go through the artery and then go into the aneurysm, if it's amenable, and put coils so it actually clot forms inside that. And that basically makes the aneurysm meaningless. It's no longer uh, in danger. So there's a lot that can be done, uh, but you have to know what you're looking for. Right, <clears throat> absolutely. All right, the next um, cause or the next reason for brain bleeds is buildup of amyloid protein within the artery wall of the brain. And I think we talked about cerebral amyloid angiopathy a little bit in the previous episodes, but this essentially is a condition where um, there is excessive deposition of amyloid in the arterial wall. And we tend to see either small little micro bleeds all over the brain. You yes. know, it looks, look, almost looks like a Christmas tree, yeah. a reverse Christmas tree where there are these dark spots all over the brain. And then sometimes there is a massive um, bleed inside the brain. And the typical questions that we get in our neurology boards is, you know, an elderly person with some mild cognitive impairment or some memory problems comes in with a massive bleed, what could the reason be? And it usually is amyloid angiopathy. Absolutely, and and it's um, and it's uh, often seen um, in in older population, as you said, um, and and the way to detect those, although that's very difficult, is uh, to know ahead of time that there's amyloid deposition, and when you see these little micro microvasculature hemorrhages or microhemorrhages early on, that's when you actually start managing, and the only management at this point is blood pressure management. There's no medication yeah, for amyloid. Yeah, more aggressive blood pressure management to make sure that these. Um, these cumulative amyloid deposition does not become a massive bleed uh, because of pressure, blood pressure. And that's, that's, the, that's the, the, the knowledge that will help you avoid those massive bleeds. Absolutely. We talked about arteriovenous malformation, which you know um, is a leak from abnormally formed connections between arteries and veins. And then we have bleeding disorders, um, you know, like people who have uh, some coagulopathies, um, whether it's a genetic coagulopathy where they are either missing a fraction of an enzyme or they're completely missing an entire process where clotting products and bleeding, uh, you know, processes are not controlled very well. So whether it's a small little bump against their shin or maybe even a whiplash injury can actually result in massive bleeds in the brain. Correct. Correct. I mean, there are two, I, I'm, I'm oversimplifying the, the bleeding cascade or coagulation cascade. But if, you ha if you're having these little bleeds on the skin, they call it petechia, that's usually related to platelets. And, and people can actually, that can actually affect the brain as well. Yes. But then the, the deeper tissue bleeds are as a result of the coagulation pathway, which is 
pretty amazing to see these, you know, these proteins that one actually affects another and on and on. Uh, 12 um, uh, uh, different proteins that affect each other until you get coagulation. And anywhere in that pathway, if one of those are genetically off, pe person has a higher likelihood of bleeding or, or clotting. Uh, factor uh, 5 Leiden, uh, protein CNS, and, and, and all these disorders that are fairly common. And different populations have different proclivities for these bleeding disorders. So that's something to be aware of as well, that if you have a family history of bleeding disorders, that matters because that affects the kind of pills you can be on, the kind of medications you can be on, how you should be observing your, uh, your clotting factors, how you should be observing your blood pressure and everything else, including the food you eat. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Um, and obviously, you know, people who are on anticoagulation or anticoagulant therapy on blood thinners can also be at high risk for brain bleeds. The next one is brain tumors. Now, brain tumors that, especially the ones that press against the brain tissue, um, can cause bleeding. Sometimes uh, blood tumors or brain tumors have specific blood vessels, you know, because when they grow, the tumor itself starts having very um, elaborate vasculature. And um, these blood vessels, because they're not supported very well by the structure of the tumor, it can start bleeding inside the tumor and eventually outside, causing a lot of pressure against the brain. Metastases or seeding of cancer cells from other parts of the body, like for example, the primary cancer is in the kidney, but it actually seeds in the brain. It can actually cause bleeding. It's been associated with increased risk of bleeding. And Melanomas, yeah. uh, skin cancer can cause a lot of bleeding in the brain as well. Not all metastases are associated with blood metastases, brain metastases or bleeding. For example, prostate cancer is not associated, but melanoma and kidney are fairly well associated. Definitely. Um, the, the other lifestyle-related risk factors are smoking, heavy alcohol use, use of illegal drugs like cocaine or methamphetamine have yeah. been associated with intracerebral bleeds. And most of these are either related to, um, you know, constant harm or constant uh, damage to uh, the blood vessels or sometimes a massive change in blood pressure. Uh, with regards to um, drug use, you know, whether it's cocaine or methamphetamine or some other ones, it usually has to do with massive changes in their blood pressure um, or arrhythmias, development of arrhythmias. But in bleeds specifically, it's because of blood pressure changes. So we tend to see that as well. And we see a lot of brain bleeds related to people who have smoked for a long time. Oh, smoking is probably one of the more common. Um, and then alcohol, both directly, but more often indirectly through how it affects coagulation pathway and how it affects liver. Mm -hmm. And through those pathways, you see a lot more uh, bleeding disorders. Uh, cocaine, obviously, is a vasoactive drug. It affects the vasculature significantly. So that's seen fairly uh, commonly as well, uh, bleeding in the brain as a result of cocaine and metamphetamines. Let me say that again, metamphetamines. Uh Pregnancy itself can be a huge risk factor for brain bleeds um, or any conditions that is related to pregnancy or childbirth like eclampsia, uh, postpartum vasculopathy can result in brain bleeds. And even in the babies, you know, neonatal intraventricular hemorrhage is one of the reasons or one of the, the outcomes of having some sort of coagulopathy. If the mother has coagulopathy, it can result in a neonatal intraventricular hemorrhage as well. Uh, well, e eclampsia has two ways that it increases bleeding. 
the protein, I mean, by definition, eclampsia is when the protein, there's protein loss in the urine and the women and high blood pressure. Yeah. And the, the combina- those two combinations are definitely a, a perfect uh, uh, storm for um, bleeding disorders in the brain or in the body in general. Yeah, I, it's difficult to actually um, figure out, you know, who can develop ex- eclampsia or preeclampsia or not. Um, but um, from my understanding, if a mother has uh, appropriate blood pressure, um, does not have insulin resistance or diabetes, is not overweight and is generally healthy, their risk of developing preeclampsia, eclampsia, and potential um, brain bleed is on the lower side. Correct. Right? Absolutely. All right. And then there are some other conditions that are related to um, collagen formation, abnormal collagen formation in yeah. the blood vessels. And what it does is it kind of weakens the walls of the blood vessels and it results in rupture of vessel walls. Those are very uncommon. Correct. And more genetically in, or- in orientation. Yes. And, and it usually represents or manifests earlier in life um, with, you know, connective tissue disorders, whether it's skin, mm-hmm. joint, um, you know, eyes and some sensory problems. So it's not something that kind of happens all of a sudden, but people tend to have some manifestations of it earlier in life as well. Absolutely. Let's talk about some of the symptoms of brain hemorrhage. Now, the symptoms can be varied because it just depends on where, where? which and, part and of the, the brain is affected. <clears throat> but if it's not massive, um, because if it's massive, it usually fairly quickly goes to coma uh, and, and, and potentially death. But if it's not massive, usually severe headache, is especially subarachnoid and, and uh, things that irritate the arachnoid uh, usually result in headaches. The interesting thing is the brain itself does not perceive pain. Correct. Even though it is used for us understanding pain and pain mechanism and its process there, but the brain tissue itself does not have any pain uh, receptors. That's why, you know, when you see in those movies where the patient is awake and the, the neurosurgeon is kind of, you know, touching the brain and doing their surgery, patients actually don't feel anything. Exactly, exactly. Most of the pain receptors are in the meninges and specifically the subarachnoid, hem- uh, me- me- the subarachnoid area. Yeah, and usually when they have the headache, they say it's the worst headache of my, my life. Right. And as soon as we hear that it's a CT scan, well, any bleed, any signs of bleed, any possibility of bleed should have a CT done. Well, the term thunderclap <clears throat> headache is used. Exactly. And um, th- so, yeah, absolutely. That is usually a, a, um, a notification that we have to do some neuroimaging to make sure that there's no bleeding. Now, a lot of times with the CT scan, you see a, a bleed fairly commonly. A CT, if there's anything CT is good for, it's bleeding and tissue damage, uh, uh, skull damage. But sometimes you miss it because the bleed is not large enough to be missed. So therefore, you, if you still suspect it because the meninges are irritated, they feel neck tightness and they have a headache or something like that, then you still do a lumbar puncture, which is this needle that goes in the lower spine, draws the cerebral spinal fluid, spinal yeah, spinal tap. And if there's blood there, then it's most likely a, a, a bleed. So that's, uh, that's what tells you that there's a bleed. And the importance of this is that if you even suspect that you might have a bleeding disorder, don't hesitate to go to the emergency room quickly. Uh, this might be an overcall or overshoot for a lot of people, but I think the cost benefit of the fact that if somebody's at risk, they have history of high blood pressure, they have history of aneurysms, they have family history of aneurysms, they've, they've had a, a head trauma, 
that's bad enough that now they're experiencing some symptoms. If they are um, uh, on the older side and if they had a head trauma, um, any of those things, th th I think the, your, the, your first call should be to check it out and make sure that it's not a bleed because the consequences are often fatal and if not, it's quite dire and irreversible. So that's what needs to be done. As neurologists, we were always trained to take headaches seriously and to kind of err on the side of doing more than less when it came to differentiating between a headache that was just a general headache versus one that was associated with a bleed. Um, there were so many occasions where we've heard horror stories from patients saying they had a headache, they went to their doctor and they were sent home with some Tylenol or some you know over-the-counter pain medication and the pain never went away and they were forced to go back to the emergency room within a few days and eventually somebody took it seriously, did a CT scan and there it is, there's a subarachnoid hemorrhage sitting right there. That that is an extreme case, but it has happened. Have you heard about it? Oh, I've often, heard a lot about often. it. Especially young, healthy people who don't necessarily know whether they have vascular risk factors or not, and they have a subarachnoid hemorrhage and they just live with this horrible, horrible headache for days and days. And uh, we've also heard about horror stories of things kind of, you know, taking a completely um, wrong turn and getting worse. Um, so so we always have to make sure that they get a CT scan, and even if the CT scan doesn't show anything, a spinal tap is absolutely necessary, whether it's in the emergency room or in the clinic. The next symptom that is quite um, prominent is um, sudden uh, neurological deficit. It could be weakness, it could be numbness, it could be paralysis of one side of the body, of the face, um, and it usually is focal, which means it affects one part of the body instead of all part of the body, because the bleed being on one part of the, uh, of, the uh, of the brain, whether it's on the left side or the right side, affects that particular uh, part. So we do see and do check for focal neurological deficits. Absolutely. Um, so uh, the the most important thing here is to detect any change from baseline. Yeah. Any change from baseline, if you suspect uh, risk, what we did today was kind of lay out some of the risks. Uh, the risks are blood pressure. The risks are high bleeding, and all of these things. and And I want to, I want us to kind of take a pause and go over this list that Aisha is going to go over the entire list, uh, and and make sure that you're aware of this um, because it's completely treatable. In fact, many of the bleeding disorders are surgically amenable and re uh, responsive if we catch it early enough. Absolutely. So we have nausea and vomiting, confusion, dizziness, seizures, mm -hmm. because again, you know, irritation of the brain can result in seizures, difficulty swallowing, loss of vision, not being able to see things properly, loss of balance or coordination, stiff neck, like you said, or sensitivity to light and sound, abnormality in speech, slurred speech, difficulty reading or writing or understanding people, and any change in level of consciousness, especially if the bleed is affecting the brain stem, um, and sometimes trouble breathing and abnormal heart rate. So, you know, it's quite varied, but this is the main list of the manifestations of a brain bleed. Correct. All right, so let's talk about its diagnosis. We did say that it's very important for them to be 
um, examined, any change in baseline is detected. The first and the foremost thing that people usually do is neuroimaging and CT scan is very fast. It takes about five to 10 minutes yeah. to do a CT scan and it has a very high sensitivity of detecting uh, bleeding. But we also have uh, magnetic resonance imaging or MRI or MRA, magnetic resonance angiogram, which looks at the arteries and the veins in the brain. And these can actually help us determine the location, the extent, and sometimes even the cause of the bleeding, depending on where it's coming from. Spinal tap to examine the cerebrospinal fluid that surrounds the brain. And in some cases, we tend to do conventional angiography, which essentially means that, you know, there is um, there is puncture to a major artery and it usually is either in the groin or in the arm. And then through a coil, you're, you're supposed to actually go into the brain and then there are films or x-rays taken that can help us identify lesions like aneurysms or arteriovenous malformations. Sometimes even during the diagnostic procedures, neuro, neurosurgeons or vascular uh, surgeons tend to even start tre the treatment Correct. there. If they think it's urgent and it needs to be addressed right there, they can actually start it right then. Yeah, so whether it's clipping or coiling or injecting some glue to hold that aneurysm or the AVM stable, it is done right there and then. And as far as you know, other treatments are concerned, we talked about evacuation of the blood from the brain. Um, the common thing is drilling holes into the skull. It's called burr hole. And then they place in a tube called the EVD, um, extraventricular device, where it actually starts draining some of the blood to the outside to relieve some of the pressure in the brain. And there are times when they actually remove part of the skull to allow for the brain to swell and expand. It's called craniotomy. Yes. And it's, it remains out and cut for days to it's, it's weeks a, to sometimes even months. It's an amazing thing to watch. Absolutely. The brain, you can actually see the movement of the brain tissue, but the reason they had to take the, that part of the brain out or the skull out is because if they try to drain the blood for, for, through a tube, the pressure is so rapid that actually brain tissue can go through it. So you have to remove a sizable chunk of the skull so that the brain can actually swell out and relieve the pressure. And multiple studies have shown that people actually, um, they, you know, it reduces mortality, it reduces a significant amount of disability when that is done. It's a very scary thing for family members to see, you know, part of their loved one's brain just bulging out of their head, but it is a life-saving procedure and it has an amazing, amazing things. Um, and then um, depending on the reason or the cause of the bleed, there are multiple things that can be done. Reversal of anticoagulation, giving them FFP or blood products to make sure that the coagulation cycle comes back to normal, uh, making sure that they get enough blood and fluid so that they don't have a cardiac arrest, making sure that you know, whatever lesion that is causing it in many cases, for example, in brain tumors, you know, sealing or, um, you know, getting rid of that space occupying lesion. There are multiple things that, that can be done at that particular time. But as far as um, intracerebral hemorrhages related to unmanaged vascular risk factors are concerned, a big, big portion of them can be prevented. And we talked about the importance of blood pressure management and cholesterol management. And those are the things that we often see because of just the sheer number of patients presenting with those kind of conditions. And uh, what about l low cholesterol levels, which we hear quite often? Right. So, uh, you know, I think there's, um, 
there's no doubt that lowering uh, cholesterol, LDL cholesterol, let me be very Correct. specific, has been associated with better cardiovascular outcomes. So it can prevent, you know, it's used for both primary and secondary stroke prevention. Um, but there's some data from epi epidemiological studies and clinical observations that showed that when people have very low LDL, so for example, people who have less than 70 milligrams per deciliter um, of LDL, especially among East Asian men, Mm -hmm. they tend to have higher risk of um, hemorrhagic strokes. Now, this data has been, you know, kind of replicated in multiple um, studies, and it's mostly seen in East Asia Asians, specifically in men. And the mechanism is not very clear. They haven't really been able to uh, understand as to why that happens. There are some hypotheses, and it's essentially based mainly on the fact that uh, people need an adequate lipid level for maintaining normal membrane fluidity and vessel integrity, and that anything lower than 70 milligrams per deciliter could potentially affect that process, and it could make the blood vessel walls weaker. But uh, it's not very clear. Because we usually ask for people to be lower than 70, yet this is for people who are susceptible. This is for individuals that are susceptible for bleeding or of a particular category. Right, right. And so, you know, some groups have come up with a concept that is, um, you know, noted as the double hit phenomenon or the double yes. hit model, which essentially says that if people have very low LDL, and on top of that, they have other structural changes or other risk factors, say, for example, high blood pressure or um, initiation of anticoagulation in them or uh, initiation of antiplatelet agents like aspirin or Plavix or these other medications. The low LDL and then the other risk factors significantly affect the inner linings of the arteries and they can put people at a higher risk for mm -hmm. having hemorrhagic strokes. So that's just a concept and a theory. Again, we need more studies to look into it, more data. And it hasn't really been seen outside of um, Asian population. Mm -hmm. So we're not really sure what that is. And this doesn't mean that we should stop lowering LDL for primary and secondary uh, ischemic stroke prevention or for cardiovascular health, but it essentially points to the fact that uh, it's it's we, obviously we need more data and it's very important to look at the entirety of a person's risk factor before deciding whether they should be on a particular type of medication or their LDL needs to be lowered significantly. Absolutely beautiful. Um, <clears throat> so. Um, what we were uh, talking about here, the description of the patient, Mary, uh, what diagnosis would we give her? So Mary seemed like she had, you know, she definitely had trauma and um, she started bleeding. And there was a period where she felt pretty okay. And you tend to see that in epidural hematomas exactly, yeah. where, you know, initially when people have head trauma, they kind of feel dizzy. They may even lose consciousness for a little bit, but then there's a lucid period. And that lucid period could be minutes, hours to sometimes even up to a day. And what happens is the bleeder blood vessels or whatever damage that has been done slowly and gradually starts bleeding and bleeding, bleeding, and it presses against the wall or the, the side of the brain and 
patients start having manifestations of that bleed or start experiencing symptoms when there is significant amount of compression of the brain uh, where they lose consciousness and they have focal neurological deficits. So I think she had an epidural bleed. Yeah, and then we, we've known many people in the media that, that, that we've heard about that had similar. One of them is Liam uh, Neeson's wife, uh, yeah. Richardson. Yeah, um, uh, that was, um, uh, yeah, she was a skier and uh, she, so she was uh, she, Natasha Richardson. She was skiing and uh, she fell, just normal fall and hit her head and she was fine and she came back home. And then within hours, she uh, became more somnolent and unresponsive, and she started having uh, the bleed in the brain, and, and she passed away. And uh, that was uh, one of the cases that was shocking to everybody, that this, she was young and vibrant and, and active. She was skiing. Um, and, and yet uh, one uh, little trauma that was not um, recognized early enough ended up um, taking her life. And uh, so that's that's why it's something that's treatable, avoidable. And that was just one version. We're talking about the epidural. Then, you know, the aneurysms, one can identify them early enough. The uh, the other kind of bleeding disorders that we have. And then, of course, the big ones, alcohol, cigarettes, cocaine, um, uh, blood pressure, and, you know, the, the these kind of things well, are... Well, let's talk about the more common ones, you know, like yes. people who have... Um, unmanaged cholesterol, or if they have diabetes, or if they're not eating a healthy diet, or if they're not exercising, these factors do matter. And in you know multiple studies, when people live a healthy life, they have lower risk of both ischemic and hemorrhagic strokes. So, yeah, there's there's a lot one can do. Obviously, I mean there are some conditions that you know you didn't have to do anything with it, like for example, arteriovenous malformation. Mm -hmm. You were born with it. But for the majority, there's a lot that one can do to prevent this devastating disease. Absolutely. Or the group of diseases, for that matter. Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. Yeah. Well, this was really helpful. I think so. I think uh, we're uh, the, this should raise some awareness and would love to have some conversations about this with the, with the, with the audience. And uh, more importantly, uh, you know, spread the message. Thank you for listening. <laughs>